the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernio. Carol is a nationally known gerontologist, serves as chair of the board of the National Council on Aging and executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. And each week we come together for an hour to talk about issues that affect caregivers. And, boy, there are a lot of issues. Well, there are a lot of issues, but we have an excellent guest today uh, to talk about you know, a subject that's really become becoming more and more, I should say, clear in my head. It's always been important with the issue of, you know, the interaction between our caregiving lives and our work lives and just the impact um, that caregiving can have on we, particularly for women. And she has written a book which captures this exactly. The book is titled Mogul, Mom, and Maid. And we will talk with Liz in just a few minutes, but I want to kick off first uh, with the answer to a question that every living human being wakes up thinking about, Carol Zerniel, diet or exercise to fight obesity? Well, this was a report that came in from the New York Times, and I have to say I'm almost hesitant to talk about any studies now because my son showed me a clip from a John Oliver show where he made fun of, of people that read studies and how much bad, how badly some of us do in reporting them and we skew the results or we say things that the studies really don't say. And sometimes it's not our fault. Sometimes it's the intermediary. Not that I'm saying the New York Times is wrong, but just I just want to, for any John Oliver fans, yes, I saw that segment and too bad. We're going to talk about the study Anyhow. anyway. Anyway, um, so... This was from Gretchen Riddle, Reynolds uh, in the New York Times, and they were talking about, you know, we, we keep hearing from most everybody that, you know, you, it has to be diet and exercise um, and that for weight loss, exercise alone isn't enough. It has to be accompanied by diet. But there was a study with rats um, where they took young rats that were prone to obesity because they grew them to be that way. They were genetically dis- uh, disposed to be fat yeah um and some of them they so they had a control group where they had the rats they could eat as much as they want and lay around as much as they want like any normal rat teenager would do uh and then they had the group where they put running wheels in their little cages and rats love to run so that was no problem so they could eat eat what they wanted and they could run as much as they wanted and then the last group they were on a diet so they had calorie in restrictions they didn't have the running wheel but it should have kept them about the same weight because they um, were dieting so dieting and no exercise and then they looked at the little teenage rats and what they found by the time the teenage rats had become middle age and this is the key they're talking about your habits in your teenage years and what that does for you later on is sure enough rats with lots of access to food and sedentary laying around were starting to get fat in their middle age. They were starting to get obese. The little running rats did pretty well. None, you know, none of them were fat, and, and none of the dieting rats were fat either. But then, so they looked pretty similar on the outside, but then they started checking their, you know, their, their blood and their metabolic rate, and they found that there was a big difference between running rats and dieting rats. So the running rats had a faster metabolism. They had better blood sugar control. They had different microbes in their guts, you know, that kind of help control blood sugar, even though they'd eaten the same food as the dieting rats. That's a hot topic these days, microbes in your I, gut. My, I know, and their gut being a word that didn't used to be even put in print, and I, <laughs> I saw know. it here, I was like, oh, I never even used that word. Right. Um, and so what they found was, it's, it, so in essence, the runners, while weigh, weighing the same as the dieters, were, um, were better in better shape to not gain weight in the future. And so they're saying that running may actually prevent you 
from gaining weight in the first place if you start at not necessarily starting out as a teenager but as a pre you know as a preamble to your weight control running and laying a foundation of exercise is going to serve you better than just diet because what oh. you often hear people say is as they move into their 30s and 40s they can't get the weight off well and that's why they picked teenage rats was because you actually start putting on that adult weight you know as you finish your teenage years right. and so they wanted to catch them as they moved into their 20s and we all know at 30 you hit one of those walls and at 40 and 50 oh my gosh by the time you're 60 it's you all can just, over. it's all the oxygen makes you fat and so diet and exercise. Well, and the exercise—it's exercise—is going to prevent you from ever needing to diet in the first place if you do that first. But diet and exercise is the best of all possible worlds, Doctor Pangloss. We're going to transition to <laughs> aging runners, and I'll tell you a quick story about my late aunt Lynn, who was a golfer and, and loved playing golf. And she said, "You know, the only difference between..." Her game when she was young and her game when she was older is it was just more strokes per hole. Otherwise, the game was the same. <laughs> oh, does that is that important in golf, how many times it takes you to get the ball into the hole? It is. So for aging runners, how slow will I get? Is that a question? Well, this was another article of the New York Times. I just thought it was interesting because as we get older, you know, we do slow down. And I've been watching all the playoff games in basketball, and they keep talking about the San Antonio Spurs and, and you know, Tim Duncan getting older and, and our older team can't compete with the younger teams. And sure enough, we are actually out of the playoffs at this point. We are. We are. Um, and so uh, why? And so the question is, why do we slow down? Why do we lose our athletic ability as we get older? Um, and, you know, is it because our heart's not pumping fast enough? Do our muscles get weak? What is it? And the answer is we don't really know. But what we do know is that some guy in an economics lab has actually charted how slow you will get if you are a runner. Really? Yes. Um, it, he's at the economics department at Yale. His name is Ray Fair. And because he used to be a runner and he noticed he got slower, he did calculations and has actually published a table that if you put in your best time ever for an event like let's say a 10 kilometer race and how old you were when you ran it then he it will tell you you can follow the chart and find out how slow you're going to get in middle age and so if you get slower than that you're doing worse than normal quote unquote and if you're doing faster than that then you're really in good shape so it's supposed to take some of that um angst out of noticing that you're getting slower but these are you know these are people that are runners were marathon runners right. and very elite athletes and it was very hard for these people to turn into normal runners just out there for a run as opposed to running for time but if you're an elite athlete out there somewhere and you're hearing this just know you want to know how slow you're going to get you can look it up ray fair professor of economics at yale um, and you'll find out that it's just better to take off your watch and just go for fun enjoy enjoy Speaking of enjoying, we're looking forward to talking with Liz O'Donnell in just a couple of minutes. Her book, Mogul, Mom, and Maid, talking about working caregiver daughters, which is uh, more the rule than the exception. Now, speaking of sad news, uh, the old line, don't go in the hospital, there are sick people there and it's not good for you. How many people do medical errors in hospitals kill every year. Well, you know, our, our founder at WellMed, Dr. Rapier, has a slide where he talked about the risks of medical health care. So at one end is walking as a low-risk endeavor, and at the other end is bungee jumping, um, dealing with nuclear materials as a job, uh, and health care. So health care is the equivalent of bungee jumping, or going to the hospital, I should say, is the equivalent of bungee wow. jumping. And so, uh, again, from the New York Times, the, there was actually a research study that went back into um, the research back to 1999 and looked at causes of death. And because medical errors are not tracked as a cause of death, you don't fill out cause of death medical error. You know, they'll say cardiovascular because it was a cardiovascular event caused by a medical error. Um, and the CDC doesn't track medical errors. But he went back through the research and they looked at things that were considered medical errors. And that was anything that was a health treatment, a health care that caused a premature death. So it was um, diagnostic errors, communication breakdowns, 
failure to do necessary tests, medication dosage errors, and, and any other improper procedures. And when he quantified it, it comes up to 250,000 deaths per year, wow. which makes it the third leading cause of death in the United States, right behind heart disease and cancer. In fact, it's about the equivalent of Alzheimer's disease. That's yeah, one of those great lines, by the way, premature death. Uh, whenever I die, it's premature, because I am not ready to go. <laughs> well, then you're up there with my mother, you know, but she's she's in her, she's 80, and she says she doesn't have to worry about dying young anymore, so I guess it's not premature death. But but so medical errors, that's one of those, you know, we, we I mentioned this on the caregiver show, simply because we keep saying right. if you have a loved one in the hospital, stay with them. Watch Have someone everything. stay with them and ask questions. If something doesn't seem right to you, like when my father was in the hospital and they kept checking his blood sugar and he's not diabetic, I mean, that's a, that's unnecessary. So sometimes medical tests that are unnecessary can actually cause injury. Uh, and, infection. An infection. Um, you know, we were talking about infection in our office earlier today, so we got an infection from a dental implant. You know, you just have to realize that Healthcare is good, and we work for a healthcare company. Right. But you need to ask questions, and you need to be vigilant, regardless. Now, I know you're a big fan of robots. I am a big fan of the thought of robots. Yes, the thought, the concept of the robots. concepts of robots. And so, you have an update on the latest in robotic technology. Well, this came out of Next Avenue, and they were talking about, it was a blogger that was talking about the rise of exoskeletons, which sounds very science fiction. So if you saw the movie uh, with Matt Damon, um, I'm blanking on the name of it, any sci-fi movie where they, you know, it's, it's think of a cricket or a cockroach or lobster where they have the shell on the outside um, in the animal. It's an exterior skeleton. It holds you up. So they're creating artificial ones. And what's exciting, and I remember when this, the first time I heard about this, they now have exoskeletons they're putting on people in wheelchairs that allow them to stand up and walk. And if you can imagine being sitting in a wheelchair your whole life and all of a sudden putting on something that through electronics um, and braces allows you to stand up and get that weight, you know, you get your blood flowing and allow you to move. And they were saying in the, uh, in the 2014 uh, World Cup, they had a person who was a paraplegic use an exoskeleton to stand up and kick the, the ball wow. to start the game. That's cool. I mean, it's huge. It's huge. And so um, all this is talking about you're going to see more about exoskeletons, small, nimble exoskeletons that would be good for old people and people with disabilities to help them do everyday tasks and maybe even return to work. I just thought this was exciting news that it's not science fiction anymore. The thing we have to solve is the power supply uh, because the exoskeleton that Matt Damon uses, we don't have anything that will run it. We need something like a watch battery that can power a suit. We're not there yet, but as soon as we figure out the power supply, get ready, because we're all going to be $6 million people. I could use one for my left knee, so stay tuned. And it sure beats surgery, assuming those things work. By the way, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM The Answer. Ron Aaron with Carol Zerniel. In just a moment, we will welcome Liz O'Donnell, author of Mogul, Mom, and Maid. She is an author who writes about a whole lot of issues affecting women, and we will talk with her in just a couple of moments right here on 930 AM, The Answer. Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Charitable Foundation. His goal, to support seniors and their caregivers in our community. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to the local senior programs that focus on wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and people that care for them. Programs like Caregiver SOS Resource Centers that offer complimentary support programs for those caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, and a whole lot more. San Antonio has six Caregiver SOS Centers. For locations or more information, go to Caregiver SOS caregiversos.org or call 866-390-6491 for more information on how the WellMed Charitable Foundation is impacting San Antonio seniors and how you can help go to wellmedcharitablefoundation.org that's wellmedcharitablefoundation.org Rocking along here on Caregiver SOS on air, Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, and we are delighted to welcome to our Caregiver SOS on air 
Guest line, Liz O'Donnell, author of Mogul, Mom, and Maid, an article she wrote in The Atlantic about women who are now having to become caregivers for their aging parents. Liz, thanks so much for coming on with us. Thank you for letting me be here today. Now, you not only wrote about and write about women and issues involving caregiving and other activities, you also have been a caregiver. Oh, yeah. My my philosophy is write what you know, because I don't have any time to do anything else. So tell us about that experience. Sure. Actually, the book, Mogul Mom and Maid, was uh, more about working mothers and how much they take on at home and how that impacts their careers. And while I was out, just after the book was published, trying to promote that, my parents, uh, who lived about an hour away and were octogenarians at the time, started to need more and more. And it dawned on me that there, I was already in a very crowded market, you know, the market that caters to working mothers. And here I was, I found myself what I call a working daughter. And some of the challenges were so much more difficult, and nobody was talking about that. And that's when I really shifted my focus and started uh, my blog, Working Daughter, and started looking at, okay, how do we help these women who have very significant career challenges, very significant personal challenges, and many are suffering in silence. They don't realize that the person in the next officer cube might be going through the same thing. So what was it that you found that was more difficult as a working daughter than as a working mother? Uh few things. One was the isolation, the realization that um, other people were going through this, but I didn't know it. There wasn't a conversation like there is about motherhood. Another was um, there's a lot of joy in bringing a new life into the world, right? When you have a baby and you become a mother, as challenging as it might be to balance career and, and personal life, you are holding this little bundle of future and hope. On the, on the uh, working daughter side, you're talking about leading someone towards end of life, which is never an easy process. And then I would say probably the most difficult part was the unpredictability. Um, I mean, you know, for women who have healthy babies, certainly, there's some level of predictability, right? It's at a certain point we know I am going to give birth to this baby. We might not know the day, but we know roughly the week or the month, and we can we can plan at work that I'm going to be out for 12 weeks, eight weeks, whatever you know we're able to take. With with caregiving, uh, elder care, you just don't know when you're going to be needed. There's no way to predict that. What were some of the big surprises you came across? Um, well, for me, what has, so I, I mentioned I was out talking about the book about working mothers and my parents started to need more and more. There's the creep, right? I'm sure you've talked about this before, the caregiver creep. You don't realize how much you're taking on. First it's groceries, then it's sort of med management, then it's, you know, chores around the house. You don't realize you're taking on more and more. And um, I was sitting in my mother's doctor's office one day and he, he just looked at me and said, why aren't you with her every day? Why don't you know what she eats every day? Why aren't you calling her every day? And it was the first time in my career that I thought, this is too much. I need to quit my job. Um, I happen to be the breadwinner in our family, so it's not an option for me to quit my job. But I never really felt that way as a mother, even though everyone told me, once you have a baby, you're going to want to quit your job. That was a big aha. But there were, there were and there continue to be, as I care for my father now, who's turning 90, so many moments where I just think this is too hard. Well, I think you really hit on something in terms of uh, with you know there's there may be an argument and discussion among women about working a working mom or not a working mom and and, and we're kind of at a place where you need to do what you know, you decide to do and you should have that choice. But well, on the caregiving side, there's sort of an, an expectation. You know, it's like you, but you have to go take care. They're your relative. It's your mother. It's your father. It's your husband. You know, you should, you're going to have to quit. You're going to have to, you have to do this. And, and that doctor was doing a real guilt trip on you. Yeah. And my mother loved her doctor at the time. And, you know, and my mother feeling you know, safe and secure in the doctor's office was important to me. Otherwise, it would have been an ugly conversation. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> yeah, really. how did she feel after you killed him? <laughs> <laughs> I was, I, I mean, and, and a lot of doctors, like, the doctors always say to my mother after we leave, is your daughter a lawyer? I, you know, I'm not afraid to ask questions, and you were just talking about the importance of advocating and asking questions, but I, I actually uh, surprised myself. I bit my tongue that day because 
I think I would have only had two, you know, two uh, spots on the dial, quiet or furious, and I didn't want to upset my mother. Now, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. We're talking with Liz O'Donnell, author of Mogul Mom and Maid, and uh, balancing career and caring for kids, caring for a husband, caring for elderly parents can become an incredible challenge, and it's something that... Uh, Liz has written a lot about, and you, Carol Zerniel, have had experience with. Well, it's certainly not unique um, that many of us are moms and also caregivers. But, Liz, what I'm wondering is, you know, is there a double standard in place? Is it more difficult for women than men to take on the caregiving role, or is it vice versa? I don't know about whether or not it's more difficult or not, but I was certainly nodding my head when you were talking, Carol. I think there is a double standard. Uh, the, the statistics and the data shows that the split is really 60-40, so about 60% of family care, unpaid family caregivers are women and 40 men. So that's not drastic. This is not all on the woman's shoulder, but I think the expectation is that it will fall to the women. I was at a panel recently um, on this topic, and you know, STEAM panel, doctors, gerontologists, people who run, you know, great assisted living. And the word daughter came up, I counted seven times in the hour-long panel. The word son never came up. So even though the reality is a lot of men are in the same boat, the expectation I definitely think is women. And the reason I focus in my writing on women and not men, you know, acknowledging that men are doing this too and have challenges, is I, I think women come to it oftentimes from a weaker position. We have, you know, we were the ones who gave birth if we are mothers. We were the ones who took time out of our careers who are facing um, obstacles in the workplace because that there still is that double standard around the mother who's working. You know, if she leaves to get the bus, then oh, she's not that committed. But if he leaves to go coach the soccer team, what a guy. That's the kind of person we want in our company. So you're already coming at it potentially from a weakened state, if you will, and now you're running out the door because you just got the phone call. Well, and the the figure that we often quote around here is that a woman who quits her job to take care of an, uh, a relative uh, in a caregiving situation gives up on average $325,000 in lost wages, and that's in actual earnings and in, in Social Security benefits and other benefits that are associated with retirement, which if I... If if I came to you and said, are you willing to give up $325,000 so that you could be a caregiver as opposed to not, you know, not understanding that's the choice you're making? I mean, that's huge. That's a staggering amount. I wrote about that, too, in my article in The Atlantic. And it's not just a willingness to give it up. And we can talk about all the guilt and the assumptions that go with the fact that we're supposed to say yes, right? But, it, uh, I mean, the practical reality, we're potentially earning less due to the fact that, you know, our careers might have taken a, a you know, a more wiggly path. Um, and we're projected to live longer. And yet, at some point, I, I think the average family caregiver is about 48 years old. I mean, at, at 48 years old, we're potentially stopping, um, you know, depositing into our retirement funds. We're at, a, you know, a $324,000 loss. And, and how are we going to pay for our that's a huge hit to Social Security as well. Mm-hmm. Well, and one of the, the issues that the National Council on the Aging is working on, and as you mentioned, I serve on their board. Um, for the chair 20, their board. For, for the 2017 legislative agenda, you know, these caregiving issues are huge. And so looking at caregivers who are stay-at-home caregivers being allowed to earn Social Security quarters uh, to qualify for Social Security and Medicare um, is one of the legislative issues, as are tax breaks for caregivers who are, you know, spending on average 5000 out of their pocket, but many spend way more than that if they're involved uh, in paying for in-home care or some kind of residential care uh, for their loved ones. As you travel and talk and meet with folks uh, who share their experiences, uh, the kind of issues that uh, seem to be at the top of mind for many caregivers, uh, especially the women that you're talking about and writing about, what do they bring up as the major issues? Uh, one is the um, unpredictability of it all. You know, I, when I talk to women who have their own businesses, for example, suddenly they've gone from having a long-term financial plan to living check to check, and they are very worried about where they're going to be when their caregiving phase is over. 
are they still going to be relevant in the career? Are they, you know, if they are in their mid-40s, going to be hireable because we do face, you know, an ageism as well. Um, that's one. And the other is, and, and maybe we can talk about this more after the break, but hospital discharge. You know, I, I run a group on Facebook for working daughters, and we just all share our woes and our wins and our concerns. And, you know, one woman the other day, she got the call from the social worker, your mom's being discharged today, come get her. Well, she's in the middle of a big thing at work, and her mom has two broken hands. She's not going home alone. So how do you, you know, drop everything, run to the hospital, and all of a sudden have somebody who needs 24 care live with you, and there's no time to plan? That's a big, big one. Well, and that's, you know, and I think that is huge because so often, you know, the hospitals, if, they're, if they are talking to a man, they're thinking about his work and his work schedule, but if, when a woman shows up, I don't, I can't think of any time uh, when any relative has been discharged from a hospital, anybody has asked me about, you know, your does it, yeah, is it, you know, what's going to keep this from happening today or, or, or is this going to work for your family? Um, and oftentimes, as we know, we've talked in the past, hospital discharge planners have sometimes even released relatives to go home when the family has been able to make arrangements and they go home with no food or nobody to look after them and it's a bad situation. Stick with us. We're going to come right back to you. It turns out uh, it is not uncommon for people to break both their wrists. My mother did that a few years ago and it is incredibly debilitating as I'm sure uh, that woman discovered. Liz O'Donnell, stick with us. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM The Answer. Ron Aaron along with Carol Zerniel. We're sure glad you're with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. Fascinating topic. And I think every week we bring you fascinating topics. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Liz O'Donnell, author of Mogul, Mom, and Maid, is with us. She does a blog for working daughters as well. And we're talking about uh, her experience in trying to decipher and, and deal with the world in which many women find themselves. Well, well, Liz, you were talking before the break about some of this, the emotional roller coaster that women get on in terms of guilt um, and you know joy and all the ups and downs that go with being a caregiver. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the conflict inherent in being a working daughter? Sure. I think one is if you are a working daughter in the sandwich, so if you're both a working daughter and a working mother, um, you're probably feeling like you didn't have enough time for your children to begin with, and now you're dividing your time, you know, into potentially thirds. Never mind any time for yourself, right? I think the common theme among working daughters is I'm at the doctor all the time, but never for me. You know, when was the last time I had my mammogram or scheduled it, even though I see doctors all week long? Um, I think that's one of the, the divided attention and wondering if you're making the right choices. Another big piece of it is um, the common conversation, I think, around being a caregiver to your aging parents has been, at least this is what I would experience, and say, oh, you know, I'm really busy, I'm caring for my aging parents, and everyone would say, what a gift, and you'd almost hear, like, angel bells and, and picture the halo over your head. Well, it doesn't always feel like a gift. I mean, there's a whole range of emotions that comes with being a member of a family, right? None of us, I don't think, grew up in a leave-it-to-beaver family. And so um, I think, you know, it, it, you feel shame if you're not approaching this with a big smile on your face and an open heart. And that's just not always the case. Well, you were talking about, you know, the men and women both being caregivers, and some of the research that we've done at the foundation with the Health Science, University of Texas Health Science Center, you know, shows that that perhaps men look at caregiving more as a business. So that you know, okay, mom needs Meals on Wheels, she needs some care in the home, check, 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 go arrange the services, um, and that they don't in that they may not, and I don't want to generalize, have that emotional investment that women have got to get it right. The socks have to match. The hair needs to be coiffed. You know, mom looks needs to look presentable. And, and men are sometimes maybe a little bit more flexible in letting some things go that may aren't as important in approaching it as a business. Does does that sound, you know, does that resonate at all with you? That absolutely resonates with me. And I almost wish for women that they could get somewhere, you know, find a middle ground there. Um, I did a sort of a tongue-in-cheek blog post the other day about caregiver guilt, and I said, Maybe one of the reasons we're feeling so much guilt has to do with chokeholds and forehead taps. And people said, what is that? 
I did a search and, you know, stock photography of elderly mother and her daughter, and, you know, the images are just silly. There, I found image after image after image of either, uh, you know, a middle-aged daughter hugging her elderly mother with both sort of her arms draped around the mother's neck and they're gazing, you know, happily into the future, or the mother and the daughter just leaning their foreheads together and smiling. And, I mean, who does that, right? So I think, you know, media images, societal and gender expectations, they all add up. Well, Carol doesn't often break up, but you have absolutely touched her funny bone with that one. I'm over here laughing and thinking, oh, my gosh, we have to go back and look at the website. I bet every picture is a chokehold or a forehead tap. Because <laughs> you're right. That's, I'm just, I can, all these pictures are coming into my head, and they all look exactly like that. Now, you might be, and, and, and we're here to talk with you about what you're doing, but uh, Wellman Charitable Foundation, you mentioned isolation when we first started talking, and they have a caregiver teleconnection program which hooks ter- caregivers, caregivers up uh, through the telephone, which is the lowest and easiest technology, and it's something that uh, you don't have to be there alone 24-7. Yeah, I think that's so important. I really think that the caregiver I really didn't know that my other coworkers, some of my other coworkers were going through some of the things I was going through. Um, it just wasn't a conversation. I mean, now that's all I talk about. I'll bore anybody at a cocktail party about elder care. But I didn't realize, you know, that I wasn't alone. I was, you know, my, my dad was 41 when I was born, so I felt like, well, I've got older parents. No one else is going through this. Um, but I'm excited to see things like the teleconnect that you just mentioned, I met a woman recently who's uh, pairing up women who've been through the experience with new caregivers, sort of a mentor role. I've got, as I mentioned, the Facebook group going, and it's really been gratifying to sort of log on and see one of the women saying, you know what, I had a terrible day today, I know this group is here, and I know that there are people who understand what I've been through. I think that's just a big part of it. Well, you talked about, you know, your your specialty in business and working women. Are there things that are not happening in the workplace that need to change uh, in order to make having these roles uh, easier? Well, here's where I think some of it is very similar to the, uh, you know, what we're talking about as far as working mothers. What I think has been great in the workplace in the past couple of years is the conversation has shifted from the needs of working mothers to the needs of working parents. I think that's been great because it better reflects, you know, today's society and the fact that both parents work and more and more men are very hands-on at home. The conversation hasn't really shifted, though, from working parents to working parents and working sons and daughters. Uh, We've seen, you know, more and more conversations, which is all good news, around parental leave, but really we need to be talking about family leave because the needs to have flexibility, the needs to take time off and come back to your existing job exists for both the elder caregiver and the child caregiver. Right, and and we do have a long way to go just in terms of acceptability, even if, you know, maybe Family Medical Leave Act is there. There are some, you know, issues with how they define family within the act, but just the acceptability. Um, As you mentioned, it it is okay if you have a sick child to go take care of, of that child, but if you are regularly and sporadically trying to take care of your elderly parents, it's kind of frowned upon. It really is. Again, it goes back to that unpredictability. I can't say that I'm going to be, you know, I know when there's a doctor's appointment, but I don't know how many caregivers have gone to what you thought was a routine doctor's appointment, and next thing you know, they found something else, or there are more tests, or, you know. Um, or you that, sit in the lobby waiting for an hour for that appointment that should have taken 20 hours, minutes. Or, or for five or hours. five hours, right. <laughs> Nothing makes me crazier. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And it happens more to women than to men. And I think that's partly because, speaking for myself now, I will get up and raise holy hell if I've been kept waiting for more than 20 minutes. And a lot of women, pardon me for saying this, simply put up with it. Yeah, that's. About, I mean, I get up and raise holy hell, too, except for that one day in the doctor's office that we talked about with my mother. I do, too. I go to, you know, I have 9 o'clock, and it's 9.10, and so what's happening? Um, but you have to balance that because oftentimes we're caring for a parent, you know, from a generation where doctors 
are, you know, seated next to God, right? You do not question authority, right. and you certainly don't question the medical profession. So I always thought I had to balance my assertiveness with what um, the patient was willing to accept. Well, so in your Facebook support group and, and your postings and interaction with caregivers all over the country, you know, what would be your top advice for these women who are, you know, sandwiched try or, or working daughters, you know, just trying to, to hold down a job and take care of mom? Maybe they don't even have kids. Two threads there. One, are, you know, on the professional work front and one on the personal front. On the professional work front, I would say... Um, you know, unfortunately, it's on us to make it work. It's not on our employers to make it work. My hope, of course, is that as we have this conversation and and businesses start to realize the impact um, that caregivers will have and they become more flexible, you know, my hope is that we get there. But right now, it's, it's on the caregiver to make it work. So, you know, this is not the time in your life to procrastinate. This is the time in your life to over-communicate, to make sure someone is CC'd on every email, that you're working in a team, that you're asking for what you're, you need. I mean, we, we all need to read our own work environments and and know what we can share and not share. I mean, it's going to be different in every company and every manager-employee situation. But to the your, your ability, the best of your ability, I would say be up front so that you never surprise the boss or the client or the team. You make sure that there's always backup. Someone is always aware of what you're doing. You know, there's always a, I always keep a document on the server. So it's a running list of, you know, where my projects stand. So if someone has to step in for me for a few days, it's not a, a total mess. And that's one thing I talk to women about all the time. And then on the personal front, it's, I, I tell women to stop shooting all over themselves. If we, I, I find the word should is so damaging in these situations because our heads are full of what I should do to be the perfect daughter. And, um, you know, that's just an exhausting way to live. We really have to figure out what works for ourselves, for our own family dynamics, for our own career development, and do what we're willing to do. And most of the time I think we're all willing to do the right thing for our aging parents. But we can't try to live up to this this chokehold ideal. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that. My mother's favorite line um, used to be, you know, should never accomplished anything. Uh, and, and she was always very mindful about, you know, should. You, getting that rid of that vocabulary, she would say, we don't say that anymore, that tape that plays in your head, because I don't know what we have now. We have digital voices in our heads, I guess. It's not a tape. or a, <laughs> right. you know, It's just a voice. It's all digital, not analog. It's all did, yeah. It's not an analog. Now voice. on your website, uh, Liz, uh, you've got a comment about stress and caregiving, and what caregivers ought to know about stress. And we talk about that uh, certainly uh, from time to time on, on this program. Stress is a real killer. Yeah, and you know, I personally I worry about that all the time. I mean, I think the six most annoying words you can say to a family caregiver is you need to take care of yourself because I think we all know it, but how do you implement it? That's a whole different ball of wax. Um, and I've been trying to really practice what I preach because I know how important it is, yet at the same time I know how difficult it can be when you're really in the middle of a caregiving crisis. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we're, we're worried about our finances. We're worried about maintaining our job. We're worried about our parents. We're worried about our kids. Uh, that takes a major toll. So I say start small. When, it, when my, I actually um, was caring for my parents, the creep was happening, and then about two years ago now, both of my parents were diagnosed with terminal illnesses on the exact same day. I went from Ugh. one hospital meeting to a client call that I took in the car of the parking lot of one hospital and then got a call from the other hospital, can you come over so we can, you know, give your mother the her prognosis. So I went through this really intense five months of caregiving a couple of years ago. And, you know, it, people would say to me, you need to take care of yourselves. And depending on how well I knew them, I would either say yes, thank you, or I would just, you know, take their head off. How am I supposed to do that? <laughs> and somebody gave me some advice and said, why don't you start by making sure you stay hydrated? And I thought that was interesting advice. But for those next five or six months, I carried, you know, one of those plastic water bottles around with me. And that was what I started with. I started to make sure I had enough 
water every day as opposed to waking up and drinking the black coffee, you know, until I crashed into bed every night. And just so my advice on the stress front is do something as small as it is and then add as you go. And that's great advice. And it was water, not vodka. It was water. <laughs> you sure about that? <laughs> well, um, tell us if people are interested in following you on Facebook or looking at your website, where can they find you? Uh, my website is called workingdaughter.com. That's the best place to look for me. And the, the Facebook group is, is a private Facebook group. But if you look it up on Working Daughter, um, you know, would love to have. I know these women are out there. And I would love to have them join the conversation. I have to uh, point out that you've got a beautiful picture that pops up on your website, which is the head bump to mother and daughter with the head knocker. I love it. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm look. I'm not kidding. I'm getting off. As soon as the show's over, I'm going to go to our website and take a look at every picture. Hey, we want to thank you so much for coming on with us, Liz O'Donnell. You're, you're a delight to talk to, and you're doing really good work. Mogul Mom and Maid, how do folks find the book? Uh, the book is hanging off of the website, so that's the easiest, although, you know, it's available on Amazon and at Barnes & Noble as well. Well, thank you very much, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Take care. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you. Liz O'Donnell, and uh, that's fascinating stuff, workingmother.com. Sounds good to me. In just a moment, Dr. Jamie Heisman joins us for Take 10, believe it or not, right here on 930 AM, The Answer. <laughs> Aren't you Dr. Robin Eikhoff? I think I am. Boy, I haven't seen you in weeks. I've been gone for a little while, but I'm back. And not only that, Ron Aaron and Dr. Robin Eikhoff are back with WellMed Radio. I can't wait. We're going to have a whole bunch of docs on with all of us, and we're going to talk about everything you ever wanted to know about growing old and feeling well. The new and improved WellMed Radio. Get your hand off that soda. WellMed Radio relaunch, June 1st, 5 p.m., 9.30 a.m., The Answer. Well, thank you so much for joining us for Take 10 at the end of each of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs. We bring you Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman, a nationally known psychotherapist and expert on caregiving as well as addiction, and Carol Zerniel and me, I'm Ron Aaron. And the topic of resilience comes up in so many different ways. How does it apply to caregivers? Well, that's, I think you raised an excellent question because I keep hearing on the news resilience in children and, you know, humans are resilient. There was a recent lecture at the Health Science Center on, you know, proof that humans are resilient. So, Jamie, why is resilience the buzzword of today? Is this something we're born with? Can you teach it? Can you fake it? Uh, how does this work? Because obviously caregivers are in a tough situation and we have to be able to bounce back. Well, all of the above, Kettle. It's an excellent topic. Um, resilience really is um, what gives people their psychological strength uh, to cope with stress. How's that? And calamity and disaster in their lives. Um, a lot of times it's about loss or the inevitable part of life that we don't want to face. Um, and when people can deal with these problems in the, you know, these disasters or these absolute surprises, or I call it two by fours with a rusty nail sometimes, um, they either deal with it in a cool, in calm way, or they melt down and, and, and the disaster just tears them apart. And so resilient people are basically people who have the skills, if you will, and then the coping strategies and actually put them into practice. How's that? So when you say a coping strategy, do you think is it something they've learned along the way or, or are you born with being able to cope? That's a great question. You know, that's one for the nature and nurture uh talking heads. And, and, and to me, I think it is both. I'm a big genetic predisposition kind of guy. Um, I do think there are families that uh, you come, like trauma sometimes is intergenerational and can actually be a genetic issue some, when it's passed on. Resilience can too, but I think that's just a portion of it. I think that we have the capabilities of it, but whether we act on it, whether our self-esteem is there, whether we believe life is worthwhile enough uh, whether we're taking care of ourselves enough, if you will, to to be meaningful, that becomes a, a, a nurture piece. Well, I was thinking about, oh, there was a, a, we had a speaker at a conference once, and it was a woman who was a Holocaust survivor 
uh, in mm-hmm. Poland, and she'd married an American. And she was talking about her coping strategy was she had to go to the grocery store every day to make sure there was still food on the shelves. Wow. Um, and for her, that was the ultimate comfort. And then she was able to relax and, and, and to go about her day. Well, you know, that hits home um, for me because my father's a Holocaust survivor, um, and he's 88 years old, and he goes to work every day, and he's healthier than I am at 61. Um, and truly, truly, I believe my father has developed that type of resiliency. I mean, when you go through the trauma, the disaster, uh, your whole life, uh, for, forgive me, the lives around you disappear, and you're the survivor with survivor guilt. Um, somehow there is a mental toughness, a strength to them. They've seen the worst. And um, and for him, it, um, he's just, knock on wood, um, healthy as they get. Has he talked much about his experience? Because many Holocaust survivors never do. Well, it looks like you have a, a good background in this, Ron. Um, my father did not talk about his experiences for, for most of my life. And I think in just in the past two years, uh, when we go to brunch or we go to dinner, is the first times I've heard him at this age telling me about the bombs that were falling, about the refugee centers, about his bar mitzvah in, in the fields of, like, France at, at some place, um, about our family, the man I'm named after who, who saved his life and ended up dying in the camps. Um, he's just talking about it now, and um, I find it fascinating um, that he didn't talk about it. So it's a great, great question. Are you doing an oral history? You should record him when he talks. You know, uh, I, I should, and I should not wait a minute. I, of course, he he might record me while I talk, because as I told you, he's healthier than I am. <laughs> so, he can so, re, you can have, it'll be but, like but a conversation. You know, but for your yeah, little girl yeah, someday. But, but, it was a, it's a great thought, Ron. It's a yeah. great thought. Um, and we, we, at one time in, in the former charity I used to run, we had such a critter called Memory Television. And right. it was a beautiful process by right. which we recorded uh, intergenerationally the kids, their parents, the seniors, and built a set designed for them. I, I think what you say uh, makes sense for everybody who's listening. Well, the resilience that he has manifested is uh, unimaginable when you think about what he must have gone through. It is, and this is what it's all about. And um, really, to me, a fighter like that, um, it's a special type of person. Now, I will say that it's a double-edged sword because there's a lot of things that he's compartmentalized, and I'm not sure that's good. I think true resilience, and I think that's what this this segment is supposed to be about, is truly about holding a positive view of yourself and your abilities and being able to provide the self-care to you, to know that, you're worth developing the self-esteem. You see, it's about how we react to change. What's that saying that, you know, life is 10% what happens to us and 90% how we react? That's really resilient. So, I mean, if you look at the different extremes um, of caregiver situations, uh, you know, you can have everything from, you know, something really, really, really awful with a, a long lingering death to somebody who really, you know, gets old and frail and eventually passes away. And the caregiving, you know, seems just like a natural extension of, of a life well lived. Um, but it can be traumatic on both ends. It, it still can be equally traumatic for the person who maybe hasn't had, quote unquote, the heavy lift. Of, of somebody who's had a more traumatic situation. Definitely, Carol. And uh, to me, that's why I believe this is a conversation that it should happen long before somebody becomes a caregiver or a caree or where we get hit with our own chronic illness. You know, I've uh, recently experienced it last year for myself, and uh, I thought, I, you know, I've been going to a therapist, taking care of myself for years, but you have to have enough in the, in the spiritual bank uh, when things happen. And so I would hope that we would not wait, you know, until some catastrophe hit or, or something unexpected hit or somebody passed away, that we should be actually dealing with our biological and psychological and our social selves um, ongoing. Uh, because it's, it's inevitable that we're going to need resilience. It's inevitable that change is going to happen, that something is going to occur that we have to, you know, draw from in our toolbox. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Take 10. At the end of each of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs, we bring you Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman and Carol Zerniel. I'm Ron Aaron. You hear us at 9.30 a.m. The answer, so Dr. Jamie, in the supplement section, 
at your local store, you can't just buy a jar of resilience? No, we're finding that out. Carol and I, and of course you too, Ron, I mean, you work with WellMed. We're seeing that even our providers around the country, not just ours, I mean, the issue of lack of resilience or burnout, compassion, fatigue, is a, the antidote is that is developing resilience. And there's a pandemic in primary care. And you know, our company is wonderful, open enough at least to be able to offer a program that we're doing today about provider resilience. So they're professional caregivers, and if we can take an example as a caregiver or a caree, look that your, your physician right now is looking for new skills to deal with uh, resilience. So are there signs if we're not, you know, if we're not coping well, if we're, we're not resilient, things you, we're not climbing out of the hole, you know, what are the signs, what would that look like if maybe we need some help? Well, anxiety, uh, feeling like you can't even go out, uh, that, you know, we're not resilient enough, if you will, to face the world. We start becoming very much closed in and, and, and isolated. Um, I think you really should, to me, and this is, again, I'm biased about this, I think no matter what, uh, beforehand, if you can, go see a therapist because, again, we need to build up this bank account of spiritual resilience. But if, if you don't do that and you do get hit with something, don't wait. You need to sit with somebody, cry your eyes out, and start building the, the structure back together so your resilience is there. And, and the beauty of being with a therapist or a support group is that you will glean, you know, things about yourself you didn't know. You probably have all the tools to be resilient inside, but you got to ask for help. And that's really the first thing I would say to caregivers out there and to, to people who, who are diagnosed as well. Yeah, but it's the last thing a caregiver ever does is ask for help. It's, and we're, we're loath to do that. That's the sad part. We're loath to do that. We're all kind of conditioned to be super people, and there's shame and stigma attached, but it is the only way out to develop resiliency. Right. So it does. It takes a village after all, and no man is an island, and all of those other sayings were correct. Sick transit, Gloria Mundi. What? Thank you. <laughs> Dr. Jamie, we're flat out of time, but uh, we should pick this up again because this is a long discussion that needs to be continued. You're listening not only to Caregiver SOS on air, but Take 10 on 930 AM. The answer for Carol Zernil and Dr. Jamie Heisman, I'm Ron Aaron. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.